Welcome to part four in the series, Reclaim, the book of Ezra. If you're just joining us for the first time, if you missed a week, no worries. Go pick that thing up uh, wherever you get podcasts. You can listen to it, catch up on that. We talked a lot about setting, so I won't go over all of it, but just kind of remind us of where we are. The Hebrew people have been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, the country had been destroyed along with the temple of God and all of Jerusalem, really the entire country, all the cities, but through God's sovereign hand, a new Persian king named Cyrus has freed them and given them money to go back and rebuild this temple block by block, right? And it's where we get the name for the series, Reclaim. They are the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and they're going to not only reclaim their land and the rebuild on this, but what they're going to do is they're going to uh, share, uh, rebuild this relationship with God. They get back and they're going to be settling, but they're going to rebuild this connection with God over time. This is huge, but the place that they are meeting at is missing, so I want you to see that. Uh, what I mean is the temple is totally destroyed, but the Hebrew people institute, they reclaim the, their worship of God first thing. Now, and that's what we said is the first step for us to get back to where we once were. Are you with me? Just to wade right through the rubble and worship uh, God, uh, God for who he is, what he has done, what he is going to do. But here is what we're going to see today. The Jewish people and the Hebrew people as they try to accomplish the construction of this new temple. Things never seem to go as planned when you're doing this, do they? They never seem to go perfectly. Well, that's what we're going to see today, but... First, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we are just humbled to get to call you, Father, to be able to gather here with our Bibles open and just ready to study your word. God, just we trust you. We thank you. Thank you for your, your scripture, uh, for your freedom just to even gather here today. Thank you for this building. And God, thank you for all of these people gathered as your body, your people, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for each person here. But Father, thank you most of all for your son Jesus as you offered him as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. God, you demonstrated your love for us uh, in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, God, for who you are. Father, as we just continue our study today, would you begin to reveal not only the lost ground we can reclaim, but draw us closer to you. God, we really want to understand your character. We, under, we want to understand who you are and what it truly means to be your children. Your, your children, God, we want to walk in that truth. Help us to see how we can go deep and become all that you've called us to be. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we all prayed and said, amen, amen. Well, where we left off, uh, is the people of God have just rebuilt the altar. Do you remember that? They've done this worship, not the temple, just the altar. They have just celebrated three giant feasts in a row. Feast of remembering, boom, 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 all together. They didn't even break camp on this. These feasts were the first time they had been held in 70 years since the captivity. And they were designed to help the people remind them who they are and what God had done for them. The first feast was to call God's people together. You remember the feast of trumpets there. Second was to repent of sin both as individuals but also as a nation. And remember that last week is we hear God but as individuals and as a nation. And we act as individuals but we also all, always act as a people. And third was to remind the people, the group, that God had taken care of them, had provided for them, had given this provision for them across the desert uh, centuries before. 
and that God would take care of them in the future. And after that, they were ready to go to begin the, pur- the purchase of the materials, all the raw materials to get the temple to, uh, built and started. And it was always a long building process, but they had another worship, kind of a uh, worship service, kind of a groundbreaking, right? As they get together, they're going to worship, but this thing is going to be big. Let's pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 3. Uh, Yeah, verse 10 of chapter 3, here it is. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets and the Levites descended from Asaph, that's the guy who wrote a lot of uh, psalms, by the way, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed them. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. Now, lots of things going on here. Don't miss this. I want you to see something about worship today. We hit this a lot here because one of our core values is worship. This extravagant worship. We want to make this big. And sometimes people say, why make worship so big? And this is one of the reasons. Scripture like this. Don't miss it. I want you to see something about worship. They prepared for worship They gathered together, the priests got their fancy clothes on, and prepared for the day. That's important, church, because our corporate worship together takes some serious preparation. It isn't just showing up and just going, hey, whatever. Now, some of you come like that. But the people who lead and do all the work behind the scenes, they don't. They think about this. They plan it out. There's meetings. There's rehearsals, uh, guest services, the security, all those things. They get ready. Why? To give us this opportunity to worship God together. So we don't just come up with this unintentional but a very intentional thing. Now get this. Worship is not about our enjoyment It is about giving glory to God. If you didn't know this, I'm sorry to to go. The the worship, the band, all the stuff, it's not for you. It's not for your entertainment. And you go, but it's very entertaining. (laughs) It is. I like to watch and worship with these guys. They're very good. But worship is not about our enjoyment, although it's okay to enjoy it. It's about giving or offering glory to God. Notice the word offering. It is offering your attention, your time, your focus, your voice, raising your hands as a physical sign of worship. My point is this. My point is this. We tend to make everything, including worship, about God, about us, really. That's just our natural way of doing things. We make worship about us. Do I like the music? Do I like the band? Do I like what the band is wearing? Do I I like worshiping? It's all me, me, me. That is a sinful notion, and that's how we come, right? And let me just tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. When we worship, we make it about God, who He is, what He has done, what He is going to do, and we thank Him for who He is. Now, that's how to lay this first stone of the foundation of the temple. That's what they do. Now, remember, it's not a building yet. It's just some stones on the ground. This is just really the first stone. It's a big stone. This is like a groundbreaking. You get the picture. One more thing before we move past the worship part here. Look at verse 11 one more time with me. It says, they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, is this the band? No. I mean, it's the band, it's the worship leaders, but it's the whole community. Watch. Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Because the foundation of the Lord's house 
had been laid. You get this picture here? I love this picture. This is a call and response kind of music. Now, we don't do that a lot in modern music. I grew up going to different churches that did that. That was still a thing kind of in the South at times where the worship leader would make a call and the audience would respond. That's what this is about. So he would say, for uh, the band would, and the singers would sing, for he is good, and the people would say, you say it, for he is, boy, you guys are rocking it. Okay, and the people would repeat, for he is good. Now, the leaders would sing, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Man, you are a white church. I'm just saying you don't have any rhythm for our African-American mainly churches. I love uh, worshiping uh, with them. I got the chance to go to Brooklyn Tab uh, this year. It's, it's, it's in Brooklyn. And uh, it was amazing. They have great music. We have great music here. Y'all are really good singers. But notice at the end of this call and response thing here, this could have lasted over and over minutes. This could have been gone 20, 30 minutes. But this is 50,000 people, and it ends with an ear-splitting shout, right? It, it's an ear-splitting shout. And if you've ever been in Mile High Stadium, it's not called that anymore, but it'll always be called that, right? If you've ever been there or even outside, when a touchdown is scored, you hear that stadium just roar out there and if you're inside the stadium you're like this but even if you're blocks away you hear it don't you it's this low rumble because there's so many people 50,000 screaming fans it's big now that's significant because their position they are literally standing on a hill or what we know now call the temple mount you can see for miles, and get this, you can be seen for miles. You get this picture? It's not a mountain like we would call, it'd be like a foothill in our vernacular, but you can see a long way. And so this is the picture. They can be seen. There's enemies in the land, and the enemies are watching because they're on top of a hill singing praise loudly, drawing attention to themselves. The enemies of God don't want the people there of God. They don't want them to reclaim. They're going to do everything to stop them from reclaiming. Are you with me? They don't want to see this worship of this foreign God to them. Watch closely what the Hebrews are doing here is declaring to their enemies, we will serve our God, we will worship him in the holy place, and ain't nobody gonna stop us, right? Write this down. Worship is a battle cry of believers declaring we are God's people. Worship is a battle cry of believers declaring we are God's people. Folks, it's why we worship loud here. It is why we make it a big stinking deal. It's why we do what we do with cool lights. It's why we prepare. It's why we coordinate music. It's why we rehearse. It's not that you just can't sing softly on your own in your bedroom and have a touching moment with God of intimacy. Praise God, do that stuff in your individual worship. You should. But I want you to understand something very important. Every time we worship together, I mean corporately, we are declaring to God, to us, and to those around us who God is, and listen, and that we are with him. We declare our allegiance to God in our worship. As we worship God, God is listening. We want to make it big. We want to make it beautiful. Some of you can't make it beautiful. Make it big, right? It's why the band and the tech team work so hard to get the worship so good. It's important. Let me freak you out just a little bit. Not only God is listening. Not only are unbelievers listening. And we hope they are and they are drawn in to him. 
But just like the Hebrews are on this hill that day with their enemies listening and watching, when we worship the Lord, our spiritual enemy, Satan, is listening too. And he is watching. Listen. And to him, the sound is terrifying. You go, why? Because our worship here is just this tiny little taste of what this will be when all of the believers are home, when the elect are standing in front of the throne of Jesus Christ, and we worship there. And that is the time Satan will see his doom, when we, he will be cast into hell forever. And listen, sin and death will be no more. That's why we worship. We remind him of what he's got coming as well. Okay, let's go back to verse 12. Look at it with me. It's, it, it's a party. It is going on. Everyone is having fun. Everyone is celebrating. Well, not everyone. Watch this. Verse 12. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly. When they saw the foundation of this temple but many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. The old people that had seen the old temple Solomon had built, they remembered the grandeur, the size, the magnificent worship, all of it. And this just wasn't the same thing. There was no temple. They were laying a stone. There was no glory. There was no majesty. But the young people were just going bonkers. They're going, look what we've got. Here's the thing with reclaiming. For the young people, all they see is the rubble, and they get excited for what could be, but they don't know what they don't know. They don't understand they had never seen the temple in its grandeur. And when I say grandeur, there's the building, the gold, all the stuff. Yes, but we're talking about the Shekinah glory that filled the temple. Even the mobile temple, the tabernacle before God's Holy Spirit would fill that temple with smoke. But some of the older folks who have been younger when they had been taken into captivity, some of them as old as maybe 20 years old, they had remembered it. They knew it. And even if they had not seen the smoke in the, the, that part, they believed what had happened when God commanded his servant Moses and Aaron to build a, a Ark of the Covenant. You remember, cover it with gold with the angels on it and place it in the Holy of Holies. Then once a year, the chief priest with a rope around his leg, just in case he died so they could pull him out, right? He goes in and offers this sacrifice on behalf of the people. That was gone. There was no holy of holies here. Aaron's staff and jar and manna, that was all in there. That box was kind of like a footstool for God where the Holy Spirit would be present with the people of Israel. That was gone, right? The Ark of the Covenant was, de was uh, there in the past. That's where God would touch earth. It's where he interacted with his people through that chief priest. There was no intermediary right now where the chief priest could go in uh, to get to God. The old people remember the old temple and they wept because there is no intermediary force. There's no way for us to get to God. We're worshiping, but is God even here? Are you understanding what they're feeling like? Now, just a side note for you and I today. That holy of holies is no longer a place. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, the holy of holies, the Holy Spirit is right here. It is in your spirit, and I mean that as serious as I can be, the God of heaven comes. And our chief priest that is the intermediary for us is Christ Jesus. Are you with me? The younger people cheered. Here's something I want you to get. There are certain people in our body, our church, that have seen the greatness of walking with Jesus individually, but also as the church. They are mature and it shows. They know, they sense 
the church body, what the church community could be. And it makes them sad to see what it has become. Not just uh, uh, individually or a community, but even nationwide in the United States. But then there are others that are younger. They love our church. They love the church. This is, uh, they, this love, the big, they love the big church as well across the world. And I'm not making fun here, but they don't realize how much ground has been lost to the church. Do you understand? You don't realize how much the people of God have given up and how we must fight to reclaim what has been lost, both as individual believers but also as a corporate body altogether. So chapter 3 ends with this shouting and crying and with these words that the sound could be just heard far away. I love that word. That's important because of what happens next. All right, let's switch to chapter 4. Go ahead and look at chapter 4. Now, uh, a, a note for you guys that are studying this outside, like you're going through those notes, maybe you're leading a community group and you're studying this. This next part can confuse people if they don't realize what's happening here. Most of the time, when you read modern history books or books, they flow in time, like chronologically, one event, then the next, then the next. Now, the Bible does that too, but not always. Sometimes it works more like an encyclopedia. The Bible works like, it says, all right, here's a special section based on themes. So it'll gather several themes together and put them together even though they may be separated years apart. Does that make sense? So that's what's happening here. But there's the first one that we look at that I want you to see. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the, the returned exiles, that's the Jews, were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, hold on right there, let me tell you what's going on here. Remember, these Israelites have been carted off into captivity 70 years before. They're just newly freed. God had warned them to turn from sin before that 70 years. Turn from sin, repent, follow me, or you'll go into captivity, right? But now they are free. They didn't listen, and boom, 70 years. During that 70 years, the people that captured them sent other people into the land to work the fields. Of that country, Jerusalem and Judah, all of that. Only a very few of the Jews had been left, the poorest of the poor, and they had intermarried with this group of Babylonians and Persians and Assyrians 70 years, creating a race that's still around today, by the way, in the same area inside Israel. It's a small race right now, but it's called the Samaritan race. Now, you know the, the Good Samaritan story of Jesus, right? He tells that, who's my neighbor, because the Samaritans were this enemy of God. And that's who we're talking about. So the Samaritans, they look at what they do. This is an enemy of God. Verse 2, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, let us build with you. For we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Esher-Hedon of Assyria brought us here. Look at that word also. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you want to underline that thing. What they wanted to say was they will worship their gods and also your God. In other words, we can be friends, right? That's what they're saying. Now, make no mistake. This is not an offer of help. This is a threat. In other words, we want to help you, but if we can't bring our gods, our way of life, and our sinful practices into your lives and into your worship, listen to me, there will be a price to pay. Here's the dilemma facing Zerubbabel, the leader of these guys, and Jeshua, the priest of these guys, and the family heads, talking about the daddies. Uh, they have come from out of 70 years of God's punishment here. God had given them because the ancestors and their leaders had done just this. They had gone the easy way. They had broken the laws of God to keep the peace. They had intermarried, but 
really what was worse, they had adopted the practices and sins and worship of these other religions and these other peoples. Just an interesting piece, one of the religions that they practice, I've mentioned here several times that we've seen is the statue of Balak, the arms that they would heat up and place their babies in and sacrifice babies. They go, we'll worship your God, you just let us worship our God with you. And the offer is back. It's like the enemies of the Jews are saying, how uh, hey, don't, we don't want no trouble around here, right? And you worshiping your God and stuff. Um, so you can either do this the easy way or you can do it the hard way. We want to be friends. That's all we're saying, right? The easy way is to go with the sinful ways of religion and of these people. The hard way would be to follow the commands of God and to rebuild the temple. This is important what you're going to see here. Zerubbabel and the leaders, remember the leaders do this stuff. They have to look at this. They have got a choice to make here. And they're going to, are they going to follow God's command and the voice of God or the threat of these people and their, uh, their offer? You got the picture? The choice doesn't seem real fair, does it? Like I would have been like, uh, hey, uh, we have a command from the king. You just don't understand. We, we have uh, this command from the king, King Cyrus. He told us to come and build this thing. And they were saying, yeah, but the king's a long way away and you're in our neighborhood now. Do you see the threat now? Now you already know what I'm going to say, don't you? About you folks, this is what you and I face every day of our lives, both as individuals and also as a body as we follow Christ. Are we going to uh, pursue building the kingdom, seeking Jesus, following his commands, or are we just going to combine it with all the other teachings and just say, hey, can we just get along, right? Some of you are going to be like, Paul, you sound like you're a Bible-thumping guy. And I go, so be it. But listen close, like Zerubbabel and leaders and the church heads and the, the family heads of, of the people of God, we choose to sell out and make our life easier. Just accept all the people what they say, nothing's wrong, everything's right, and do, and, and do truth and join them in their truth or whatever you define truth to be. Or we can follow Jesus. Do you see our choice? Look at John 14, chapter 14, verse 15. This is Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. This flies in the face of everything you hear in the media right now. That says, oh, Jesus is just about accepting and loving everybody. No, Jesus says, if you really love me, no, no, like, not just believe that I exist, but like, if you follow me, you're going to keep my commands. You see how this works? Folks, we have some great churches in Colorado, sister churches and even church plants that we give part of our tithes and offerings to help plant. There's some great things going on in northern Colorado, but there are a ton of churches that have surrendered to this. I want you to see something here. Uh, they have let sin in the door. And let me be clear, they, they either need to reform and repent or just quit calling themselves Christian churches. There are churches that have quit holding to the commands of Jesus. There are churches that have quit believing in the Trinity. They said, oh, that's just childish talk. They have quit teaching and believing in the virgin birth or the propitiation of the blood of Christ for the sins of his people. My question is, if Jesus is the only way to salvation... How can you say that there are other ways? Listen, that's the bedrock of our theology, is who Jesus is. You get Jesus wrong, it doesn't matter what you get right. There are churches that open the door to same-sex marriages and not just accept it, they celebrate it and champion it. And if you don't get behind it, well, you're morally wrong. Do you see the irony of that statement? There are no morals. 
Unless you say they're immorals, then you're morally wrong. Do you see what's happening in the United States today? There are churches that have fought for suicide laws to allow and even force doctors to carry out assisted suicide. They put a nice name on it, Greek name euthanasia, which means the good death. You choose. Listen, only God has the right to take life, not us. It's why abortion is so wrong. Life belongs to God and God alone. Someone say amen on that, please. And he is, he is only sanctioned for us to take life in a few cases. It's justice for a murder from the, the state and in war to defend our homes and to defend our homes individually. Now, some of you are, why bring up that stuff, Paul? Don't go political on us, Paul. I'm not. I'm going biblical on you, right? This is the truth. And on, uh, on these churches, we want to go biblical. Can I just really be transparent for just, just a moment and be vulnerable? We could be a lot bigger church. We could have a budget three or four times our size. If I would just quit teaching the commands of Jesus. You go, Paul, that's a nice thought. No, it's, it's actually a fact. Why this is so personal is as the planting pastor now 10 years along with you, I've not told you every time, but I've had people over the years that have come alongside. They go, we love Bentry. Oh, good preaching and good children's great youth program. We love the music, the worship. It's just, if you could quit teaching those troublesome and offensive parts of Scripture, some have called me friends, close friends and brothers, but, but when I would not sway away from preaching biblical truth, they say, we can no longer go to church with you. You're too judgmental. We'll go to a church that doesn't say that. I've literally had conversations so many times. Paul, I've got a check right here if you'll just quit preaching this way. Paul, if you just bend a little bit so we could get as many people here to hear the truth. We want you to preach the truth. Just don't preach all of Scripture. I love this one. They go, Paul, you're really funny. You're funny. Tell more of those jokes. Make us laugh. We could just be this huge, powerful church. And I tell you, it's tempting. But then I picture Zerubbabel here and the family heads. Do I carry out my mission, our mission that God has called us to? The mission from the king, from our God to do what it takes? Or do I take the easy way out? Our spiritual enemy, Satan, will make an offer that appears to be easier. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, will make an offer that appears to be easier. But it always leads to death and more bondage. That's how sin works. For you, for me, both at the individual level and as a group level. And here's the deal. We're not a very big church. I get it. And yes, I would love to have thousands coming and see a great revival, but not at the expense of the gospel. Not at the expense of God's truth. These Jews just got out of bondage. Zerubbabel, what are you going to do? One more point on this. Uh, I want you to get, by the way, I wanted to say go to Disney World. That's all. Uh, these other people, Zerubbabel, what are you going to do? Go into Disney World. That, I don't tell jokes as much. All right, the other people, the enemies, the non-Jews, uh, are allowed uh, to join the Jews. Because it can sound like when you go, well, all these people, they just want to join in. No, they don't want to join in. They want to bring their crud into the people of God. They're welcome to come to the people of God and become a, a Hebrew repenting of false gods and become followers of Yahweh. That happened all the time. Guys like Caleb were not Jewish, 
They became Jews. The Jews welcomed them with God's permission, but they could not bring their sinful ways into the body of God's people, the group. They had to repent and go through a ceremonial washing of the water, a dunking. Sound familiar? It's called a mikvah. They would literally baptize them as a sign of, I am dead to my old way of life. I am alive in the new way. That's what we do here, by the way. And think about this, workers, um, how this works in the church, uh, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells the elders of the church, he says, uh, he, he's talking about a guy, check this out, the guy has been sleeping with his stepmom. Everyone say, ooh. ooh. But they were going, hey, kind of cool. You're like, you bagged your stepmom. You go, man, what sickness is that, Paul says. Look at verse 5, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Whoo, that's some strong words. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now Paul is calling out the guy's sin and the church, the elders weren't doing it for letting him get away. Paul is calling the elders to repentance as well. And look, Paul is not just delivering this justice because he hates the guy that's sinning, but in hopes that the dude will repent and be eternally saved. I've got to tell you, there's a lot of churches that don't have any concept of scriptural truth today. But I've got to also tell you, this one does. This church, Bent Tree Church does. Not because we're good, but that I'm more afraid of Jesus' commands than what I am of what people think of us. Like we cling to Scripture like a drowning man clings to a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. I'm not letting go of it, right? Until he comes back and takes us home. And I can hear some of you thinking, Paul, uh, we're not called to judge people, though. Man, that's a deep subject, but, but let me just address that real briefly here. We are not to judge people using our own sinful standards, but that of Jesus' standards and his words. And then we are not only to judge those inside the church, but we are to not judge those outside the church. In other words, you and I hold each other accountable to what the Bible says. We sin all the time, every day. But what we're talking about is repenting of unrepentant sin. That secret sin that I hide in my heart where a brother or a sister can point those out and go, what's up, what's up? And you can say, man, I... The Holy Spirit's been digging at me, but I've got this sin, and we repent of that stuff. That's one of the big things that we do for each other. That's love, by the way. But let me remind you, there are other churches that teach a mostly sound doctrine. I'm not making fun of that, but they are all about judging everybody outside the walls instead of them. That's the other ditch, right? And even though these churches are solid theologically, they are just as screwed up as the liberal churches that say there is no right or wrong. Because these churches that judge everybody outside, they, they just they go, everybody is in the world is screwed up. Which I always think is kind of funny. Like, So you're saying that the non-Christians are not acting like Christians. Hmm. You see how that goes off? Skip down to verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5, just for a second. Paul says, I wrote you in a letter, 1 Corinthians, by the way. Um, no, no, this is a different letter. Uh, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <laughs> I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. I think that's funny. That's funny. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in sexually immoral or greedy, look at this, an idolater or a verbally abusive person or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? Yes. God judges the outsiders. Now look at this last line, remove the evil person from among you. Isn't this interesting? 
Remove the evil person from among you. I love this. I got to tell you, there's a lot of churches that are either going one way or another on this picture here. So get this picture here. What are we called to do on this thing? Well, here's what I want you to see on this. As a church, we are called to hold each other accountable. To love each other in this case. We are not to to judge using wrongful desires. But just let me remind you that we are called to hold each other accountable. And, And that's hard to do with this thing. Check out how that ends. It's the job of every believer to hold other believers accountable. That is not a popular thing to say. And all that is done underneath the spiritual leadership of shepherding elders and leaders and daddies and mamas. Okay, here's Zerubbabel and leaders, the elders, uh, with this offer to sin and go against God or face the consequences of going against the enemies. You with me? What are they going to say here? Look at verse 3, chapter 4 of Ezra. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of the Israel's families answered them, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. We're going to do it by ourselves. They say, no, we won't join your sin. So watch what happens. The enemies don't attack uh, with an army. Look at what the enemies of the Jews do instead. Verse 4. Then the people who were already in the land, this is the Samaritans, discouraged the people of, the, of Judah and made them afraid to build. And you're going to see this next week play out big time. The enemies talk the Jews, talk to the Jews just, just personally. They just discouraged them. In other words, the enemies bypassed the leaders and went straight to the Jewish people. Here's the problem. Uh, The Jewish people started to listen to the enemies instead of God. Why? Look at that first line of the verse 4. They made, or the last line, they made them afraid. When God's people are more afraid of what people think than do you see this? Then of God, what is it? When, people, when God's people are more afraid of what people think than what God says, whose people are they really? <coughs> I'm not saying that a true believer in Christ Jesus who has been saved can lose their salvation. I just don't see how Scripture bears that out. We are kept by Christ until that day. What I'm saying is that if you don't follow Jesus, what Jesus says is, are you really a follower of mine? Like when you became a Christian, you decided to follow Jesus. Was it just like a mental ascension you did? Like I believe he was the son of God. Great. Demons believe that and they tremble. I mean, you just got up to demon level with that, right? Good job. It's placing your faith in Jesus. Not only is he the son of God, that we turn our lives over to him, that that's what we live for. Like we become a Christian and to follow Jesus, and that's a big deal. What it just, it was it just a mental deal? You go, I guess, I guess. I'm not Muslim, I must be Christian. Because brother, I would just question if you really are saved, if that's you. To become a follower of Jesus means a heart decision and your head to follow Jesus. It it becomes this most important thing about you. Not some aspect, but it becomes the most important thing about you. And it shows up in how you live your life. Hear me, I'm not saying how you live saves you. Only the blood of Jesus, his grace believed on through faith saves you. But if you are not following Jesus, listen to me. Are you really saved? For you real Christians, you real brothers and sisters in the house, you beloved of God, if you are more afraid of what other people outside the church thinks than you are afraid of what Jesus says, you are not going to reclaim much spiritual ground that way. You're just not going to. 
You're not ever going to mature past a certain point. You're just going to live in fear. Let me close with this quick thought and let's spend some time in prayer together. I'm sorry for pounding you so hard. I'm sorry, not sorry. Um, I do it because I love you. Like my personality is one that I want you to like me. And so sometimes I shy back from hard truths. Every Christian and every church body comes to these times when the enemy says, we will let you join us and you join us. We'll join you. Uh, We'll worship your gods. You worship our gods. Then everybody can be happy. But we believe that we have been purchased out of slavery and I'm not going back. We believe that we have been bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and we'll follow his commands. Thank you. I don't know about you, but if God is all sovereign and can in, in control and all powerful, why does he allow us to be tested by the enemy in the first place? You know what I mean? Like God, here's a clue. Get rid of the enemies tempting us. <laughs> why all the suffering and pain through this? Two reasons, and I'll close with this. One, just like everything else in our life, since God is sovereign, he is going to use those temptations to shortcut his, uh, his glory, his plan. He's going to use it for our good and his glory. He's using it to shape and mold the world. And listen to the big and bad, ugly, sinful world out there. Our job is to tell them about a loving God who loves them who he gave his son to die in their place. And if they would only believe and confess with their mouth, they would be saved, cleansed from their sin, and given the righteousness of Jesus. That is our message. That is our life. That is our call, the gospel, to all those around us. You see, in a very real sense, just like those Hebrews who had been delivered from their Babylonian captivity, we Christians have been sent to free the bondage, uh, those in bondage of the world. Now, you'll follow the one who sets you free, or will you go back into captivity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We're humbled to be able to call you Father, just to be able to come to you face to face, to be able to speak to you, Lord. Because of Jesus and what he's done, we can approach your throne without fear. God, I pray for the individuals in this church right now that that call you Father, that you would embolden them in the lives they live, that through the power of the third person of your trinity, the Holy Spirit, that they would start to to engage those people around them and their sphere of influence of school and work, to talk about why Jesus is Lord of their life, to live unashamed that Jesus is their Savior. God, to start Bible studies that literally take their Bible to work and read it, to take it to school to ask people to pray with them and for them and to be unafraid. And when they face resistance, to lovingly say, I follow Jesus. God, would you give us a boldness in that? Give me a boldness in that. God, give us opportunity to share your gospel to a hurting, dying world. And God, for the church in in Loveland, Colorado, in northern Colorado, I also just pray, God, for just a rectifying, a repentance of churches. God, if there's anything in Bentry Church that is just not of you, we pray that you help us repent. Point that out to us. But God, we see other churches that have just gone off the rails, that have quit teaching the atonement, that have quit teaching biblical truth. God, would you just fix them or close them? And God, for our sister churches, so many that are teaching and preaching the gospel and loving and being the hands and feet, God, would you just grow them? 
That you would send people. God, I pray that Luke 10-2 prayer, the harvest is white, it's massive, and yet there are so few of the workers in the harvest. God, I pray along with my brothers and sisters right now, we just agree, would you send workers into the harvest? Change us. God, we want to be a church for you. We want to live for you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.